Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. I have the incredible Samantha Rogers on today. She's the co-founder and principal at Relate Social Capital in the sports and philanthropy space. Sam does some super cool stuff with the intersection of sports and philanthropy, and I am just grateful to be in her presence. Um, it's We both work in the Olympic space too, so it's really fun. We're both kind of pushing for the same things and it was very interesting we recorded this right around the time the olympics were canceled or postponed so it's um definitely an interesting conversation and just kind of how her career path went what she's done and how she's done it i'm again just really grateful that i get the opportunity to talk to people like sam so i hope you guys enjoy our conversation All right. Yep. We're recording. All right. Today I have Samantha Rogers, co-founder and principal at Relate Social Capital, previously formerly development and alumni relations at McGill Athletics. Sam's a pretty cool person. We got connected. I don't even know how long ago through Alicia Powell. Her podcast episodes are already up, so you can go check that one out. But uh, I get to talk to Sam today. Same thing, sports and philanthropy. Thanks for hanging out with me, Sam. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is all mine. We were supposed to do this in person, I think right around today or tomorrow, but obviously there's some stuff yeah, going actually. on. So uh, we're, <laughs> we're here now, uh, a couple hundred miles apart, quarantined together, yet apart. And uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get through this. So Sam, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is why do you love sports so much? I love sports because of the feeling, I think, is the easiest answer. Um, I've always been the one that cries at those cheesy Olympic commercials, and our families always loved the Olympics. I think I have a piece from as far back as I can remember, like one of the you know Team Canada pieces. Our mom always bought them for us every time there was an Olympics, and so I've just always loved that sports. Always been in my life as I've always um, played, not that well and forever, but um, I always played and. Just our family is a pretty athletic family. I'm from Montreal, and uh, the Montreal Canadiens are a religion here. Um, we always argue, I think, back and forth about English and French in Montreal. But if you're a Habs fan, you're a Habs fan. So that's just kind of the the, the place I've been brought up in. And and so, um, so yeah. So it's really just the feeling. I think is is the best part, and and how it brings people together. Brings people together sometimes mm-hmm. separates them a little bit but i know what you're saying <laughs> and you know it, it is it's all yeah, about like, those we emotions. all like bruins if you're a bruins fan you're you're not welcome in our city so in I'm, some ways I'm it, cool it, with that. It, it works <laughs> being here in the new york new jersey area um you know we hate boston too don't worry so we all can be fans of that but um don't hate them as much as philly though can't hate anybody as much as yeah philly, fair, uh, fair fair um <laughs> but no i i totally agree the emotions that come with sports there's nothing like it in my opinion it, it is I ride high and I ride low if my teams win or if they lose. So it's, mm-hmm. it's always interesting how something that I have literally zero impact on can affect me and my life so much, but I love it. I love Wild. every second of it. Yep, exactly. exactly. It's so crazy. Um, and yeah, I guess being in Canada, hockey, man, like what, what can you relate hockey to, I guess, here in the United States? Like it's more than football, right? It's more, is it like soccer hooligans in Europe kind of thing? Uh, I'd say probably football is a, is a pretty good comparison. Uh, we don't have obviously NFL teams here. We have a few NFL players, but we um, we're just a hockey country. I mean, everyone's obsessed. Everyone plays. Everyone's kids play, uh, and um, have a good little rivalry even between our Canadian teams in, in some cases. So, um, but it's it's pretty intense. And but you know, but then again, I'm. I wouldn't even know. I, I would say that I wish we even had more of a culture around it, like the tailgating and things like that. But it's more so just it's everywhere. That's so. awesome. And yeah, tailgating is the best. I will I will say that. Um, but <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, one yet. you've never been to a tailgate? No, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Oh, my goodness. I'm hoping it's going to happen in the fall because one of my former student athletes just won the Super Bowl with the Chiefs. So Whoa. I need to get down there and I need to participate in a tailgate. Has to Heck, who was that? Who was the gentleman on the Chiefs? 
Laurent Duvernay Tardif. He's a doctor. I don't oh know my if you've gosh. heard about this story. I did not. Please tell me. No. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you have to. Um, I'll have to send you some links. He's a he's a doctor. So he was um, drafted to the Chiefs when I was there around 2014, and he still stayed in medical school. So he was the first doctor um, to ever play in the NFL, and then just won the school. That's incredible. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah he's uh, you know. Not the highest achiever, of course. He's written a book. He sails. He's a carpenter. He a doctor. Everything. Don't let, let's never <laughs> yeah. forget. Medical doctor, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Jeez. he's he's awesome. He's uh, and it's great now because he gets to participate a lot of the in the player safety in the in the NFL and actually be able to um, speak on behalf of of athletes because he is one and he's still playing. So. That's amazing. Well, shout out to that guy. I can't say his name as you just said it. It's oh, so I think very they call pretty. him. They call him Larry. I think in uh, in Kansas City. Is it, it the way you said it was a little bit prettier? <laughs> I I do have to say it's, that. You but, know what? It's a long name, but it's a long name, so I get it. It's, that it's is lot. still so cool. And and shout out. Um. Yeah. I mean, I've never. You, you know, Super Bowls here, especially in the United States, obviously, it's there's nothing like it. It was amazing. Good game too. But that is so cool that you had that that kind of personal connection with somebody there. And yeah, hopefully. Have him take you to a game, man. I mean, the tailgates oh, are pretty, we, I pretty know, fun. I know. We've been talking about it. We all want to go down our little, you know, football booster club from McGill. So we're hopefully everything kind of works out and we can get down there. I'll cross my fingers. I, I'll cross my fingers for that, but also just hopefully everything <laughs> kind of goes back to normal. And, exactly. and um, yeah, you, you bring up the Olympics, you bring up hockey. There's so much stuff in Canada and, you know, it's just so cool. And I guess, again, I don't like to keep, you know, I want to kind of keep these positive. I want to kind of keep, you know, the story around you, but I do think it's interesting you know you working with the olympics in some capacity with some of these ngbs what was it like when canada came out and pretty much they were the first domino essentially to say like hey we're not gonna go whether it's there or not like how did how did that make you feel you know going back to sports and and something so big what what was that like kind of being canadian and, and kind of having that pride uh, it's funny, actually, I got goosebumps as soon as you said that. It's um, It was interesting because I was following the news and I saw that USA Swimming and uh, track came out saying, you know, really pushing. And I thought, okay, this is this is kind of the first step. And I knew there were some things percolating below the surface because I had been working on a side project. We were actually trying to get some of our alumni who participated in the 1980 Olympics that Canada boycotted. Um we we're trying to get them to connect with our current national team athletes in such a way that there's not really that many people that can understand what these athletes are going through other than the ones who missed out on the games in 1980. So we've been working on that in the background and then um, and knew something was coming down the pipeline. To be honest, I was, I was a little bit shocked that they took such a stance because we're always known as the country that's just kind of nice. And, and, and I was really surprised that we were the first ones to um, stand up for that. There's a new CEO that's that's heading up the um, Canadian Olympic Committee, and he's been he's been incredible. And so, I'm really proud of of what we did. And and I think it just took one to start that domino effect. And you know, it happened so late at night that I almost didn't want to go to sleep because I wanted to see what other countries were going to come afterwards and how quickly they would move. And you know, it's it's pretty incredible because it it happened um, quite quickly. And and uh, and it's funny is now always, you know, Dick Pound's Dick Pound is always in the news and he was the first, he kind of came out the next day. Mm -hmm. And so Dick Pound's actually a McGill guy um, and he's from Montreal. And so we always kind of love looking at what he's saying because he, he always, the way that he moves about in, in the space, um, you know, he was the one that started the conversation even a couple of months ago, highlighting the fact that if we don't really, see any changes by May, we might have to change. And then it very quickly became apparent that um, it's really difficult on athletes right now because of the uncertainty and, and so many qualifiers have been canceled. You know, there was a, a canoe kayak qualifier that's been canceled and that was supposed to happen in Georgia um, in April. And so when things like that start happening, it makes it very difficult and stressful on, on athletes. And, and so I'm glad that we were able to come out way ahead and much before May to alleviate that stress that now there's no uncertainty. We know it's just not happening. It will happen mm -hmm. later on. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a weird uh, dynamic. And, you know, people have been coming out. And, and yeah, you're right. You know, that uh, Dick Pound came out a couple, like, 
a month and change ago. And he was like, guys, like, we might not be able to do this. And everyone was like, nah, you're crazy. And I was one of those people. I was like, there is a 0.0% chance this doesn't happen. And then only a few short weeks later, it was there's a 0% chance that this does happen. It's crazy how quickly everything changed. Um, And yeah, I I, kind of didn't even like put two and two together until we got on here to talk, you know, and realize, you know, Canada was essentially the first country that dropped out. And it was crazy because earlier that day, if I'm not mistaken, the IOC is like, we'll give it four weeks. Like, we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll kind of just like run around yep. it. And then Canada was like, now nah, we're out. And then Australia's well, now nah, we're out. Week, yeah. Four and weeks then all is of a sudden, a long time. It's, it's a long time um, for the athletes. You know, of course, some of, some of our athletes spoke up and, and uh, it's been interesting, the dialogue that's happened because, and I, and I completely understand where they're coming from, where they're worried and saying, why are you making that decision for, for us? you know, why can't we just go and then come back and, and self-quarantine? And, and so it, it, it brought up a lot of dialogue, but I'd say the majority of athletes were really proud of the stance. And I think for a lot of us, you know, the writing's on the wall because we weren't, we surely weren't going to be the only ones. And, you know, the conversation was, how could we possibly think it's fair to expect Italy to be able to field a team or Spain to be able to field a team or, you know, so there's things that you have to consider that it's just not the timing is is really difficult and and the whole idea of the olympic movement is to bring people together and and you know this would almost completely go against that in, in mm-hmm. some ways so yeah i mean for the last couple of weeks we've all told each other don't see each other right this like mm-hmm. stay at home it's the total <laughs> opposite again and you know it's going to go on for a little while so it's it's very interesting mm-hmm. and and um so I don't want to spend too, too much time there, but I definitely just kind of wanted to, to, to understand kind of how you're feeling about it again and uh, see. So I know, so let's, let's go back to you a little bit. Thank you for that. I really do appreciate it. And as you said, uh, this might be the perfect segue because as you said, Dick Pound was actually a McGill guy. Um, mm-hmm. And you've kind of been in sports and philanthropy in some capacity for a while now, obviously with what you're doing, but also kind of what you were doing at McGill. So I guess, what is it about, you know, as I said, you know, what do you love so much about sports? What do you love so much about philanthropy? Well, it's funny. I actually, um, the working in the charitable sector was my career path. I, uh, very quickly, I, you know, when I graduated from my, um, with my BCom, I was supposed to actually work in it for Tommy Hilfiger, which is a complete <laughs> opposite route. Um, I very quickly realized you know, when they were setting me all up to, to, to work at their head office, that uh, it caused me a lot of anxiety. And it just hit me that I'm going to have to, you know, work nine to five for some man, I don't even know, making the profits off of all of us. And it just didn't feel good. Uh, and then I was able to really luckily work with a professor who, long story short, ended up uh, helping me find a program in fundraising management in Toronto. And so I went there and realized, you know, I could, I could take my business skills and, and work for a charity. And, and that was uh, really important to me. I had always grown up that way. My, my grandfather in particular um, was the VP of an insurance company. And I always call him like the OG corporate philanthropist. He was always uh, bringing his employees working at different um, uh, food banks and, and shelters and things like that. As soon as I was old enough to hold a ladle, that was kind of, you know, where he would take us on the weekends. So I just always grew up in that space and to realize I can make a career out of it. Um, it worked really well. I interned at Covenant house, which is a, a youth shelter, um, and very near and dear to my heart. And it was kind of my first work experience. And when I was there, um, you know, being able to show up every day and see the youth knowing that if we don't raise $18 million a year, these kids don't have a place to sleep. So that was the impact that I was looking for. And um, what I joke about now, because sport philanthropy is so niche, is that even someone like myself who was enamored by sports and grew up so passionate about sports and grew up so passionate about philanthropy, never knew I could put the two together. And um, even I volunteered at the Vancouver Olympics, still never realized there. I, I, I just kind of had come to the conclusion I would never really have a career in sports because I had made my career in, in the charitable sector and um, loved Vancouver so much. I stayed there for a couple of years working in health research. And that's when McGill um, came calling, suggesting that I was one of the only people they knew that you know, had a background in sport per se, and also knew how to raise money and work in the charitable sector. And, and that's how I um, came back to Montreal to work at McGill Athletics. And 
I always sort of highlight the fact that I was not interested in the job. To me, it was a way back home to Montreal. And uh, I had never wanted to work for a university. And I had specifically said, you know, why do I want to go raise money for rich kids at a university? And I think it took a couple of days that I realized I had it all wrong and, and realized that I had really, really found um, what I was most passionate about was actually sport philanthropy. And so I guess with, with that job specifically, you know, what, what were you doing if you were not you using your words, raising ri- money for rich kids? <laughs> Well, what had happened was unlike the U.S. where, you know, the athletics department is raising almost most of the money for the universities, um, McGill didn't have any program. So what I like to do is build things and fix things. So my whole role was to actually go in and build a development and alumni program. And I kind of, again, saw it. I'll be in and out in 18 months. I'll go in, I'll build something and then I'll leave. And right away, when I got in there and started speaking to the coaches and speaking to the student athletes, I was realizing that we had so many kids who, you know, they're the first person in their family to go to school and sorry, to get a, to go to university. And that was because of a scholarship that they received because of their athletic skill. Um, You know, we had kids who their teams were their families because there was no one left in their family or, you know, they were having to stay at the coaches. There's so many different stories about how sport really transformed their lives and however that they got to this athletics department. Um, And it was incredible. And I loved, I just loved working with the people. I loved working with the coaches. I loved working with the alumni and the students. And it brought back, you know, again, that feeling that I love about sport is that even though, um, you know, the 1987 national championship football team, you know, I was a toddler when they won, they still made me feel like I was part of the team and I'm still invited to their Christmas party. And I think that just goes to show the power of sports is that it's just so inclusive in a lot of ways that, um, it was great to be able to highlight that and, and really be able to demonstrate the value to the rest of the university. Because in some ways, I think that they always saw us as, you know, the dumb jocks up on the mountain. And why would I want to invest there when it's in reality, you know, what well, we just had a doctor who won the Super Bowl. So they're not dumb jocks up on the mountain. And being able to really demonstrate the value of of um, making sure that students are participating in whether it was recreational activities or on the varsity teams. That is awesome. And yeah, that's got to just be so much fun. You know, again, just finding the two things that you essentially love the most, like right outside Mm -hmm. of, you know, people and your family and being able to kind of intersect those. Um, What, what, like, what's that extra level uh, or that extra layer of feeling, you know, as we were saying before, sports brings this incredible feeling, philanthropy brings another set of feelings. Like, what is it like when you kind of layer those two things on top of each other to be able to see what you're capable of doing when you can get people excited about something as sports and give give them kind of the gift of giving through the mm-hmm. philanthropy side of it? Well, I love it because, you know, I'll say it quickly. I, as soon as I went and did my postgrad, I said, I'm never, I never want to ask somebody for money. That makes me feel gross. I don't want to ever put anyone back anyone into a corner. And my professor said, if you're good at what you do, you'll never have to ask for a dime because people will just say, how can I be involved and how can I help? And for me, philanthropy, I equate it with legacy because I think every single person wants to leave this earth with some kind of a legacy. Nobody just wants to say like, okay, I'm done and and take off. They want to have a legacy. And so I kind of see that as my role is, is what can I help you do? Do you want to have a scholarship named after you? Do you want to, you know, perpetually keep a student athlete in school? Do you want to be able to contribute, um, you know, as a mentor or what is it that you want to do that feels good and, and really helps you, you know, essentially teach people to have the feeling that I got from my grandfather. And that was a lot of the, the work that I got to do, um, even be able to teach the student athletes about philanthropy. And, you know, everybody feels good when they give some, some, you know, when they give back or when they take care of something or they just give of themselves. So really just trying to promote that feeling in a way that's really natural and normal to them and not, be, not push anything on them. So 
you know, you either are going to want to give to the hockey team or not. And I don't want to force you to do so. I just want to be able to say, hey, if you really want to have an impact and you're interested in hockey, this is one way that we could do it. That's awesome. And that, that is a good way. I mean, I'm a salesman, so I don't, I don't mind asking people for money, but I, I know where you're coming <laughs> from. And it's definitely a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a feeling. So over, so the sports and philanthropy side is kind of fun, but as you were talking about before, like that $18 million number, that's mm-hmm. a really big number and needing to raise that much money. I don't know if that's us dollars or Canada dollars. I don't really know the difference to be totally honest with you. Look, we got a smile. There we go. We're rolling again. Um, <laughs> With with that, like the stress of the philanthropy side, especially you know when you're at a you know a, a place like McGill and you know there's you know there's a very specific number whether you're at that um that shelter cool. for the children, how how do you kind of handle you know again you're doing something incredible you're doing something so great, how do you handle that the opposing stressful side of all that? That's a great question. Um, you know. And I, I, now that I think of it, because you brought this up, I don't really, you know, I always know that there's a goal, but I try not to focus on it that much because I think in my mind, I always just assume we'll hit it. And, you know, you always give yourself a stretch goal. Uh, charities too typically have reserves just in case something, you know, I don't know, like COVID-19 happens, mm-hmm. for example. So I try not to stress on it because I don't like, to always make it about money. And I think if you focus so much on the goal, then it almost becomes a sales feeling in the sense that I have to hit that goal. And if I don't, you know, I might lose my job or, you know, worse or whatever it may be. And so I really try not to focus on that if it makes sense. You know, I know how you have to get there and I know the different, um, sort of landmarks you want to be able to hit throughout the year um but but yeah i think focusing on 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 the dollar amount really donors can sense that when you know it's all about making money and i think in some big fundraising shops mcgill was like that too i mean fortunately i didn't it wasn't like that for me but a lot of people you know have their quotas that they have to hit and they have to make certain amount of phone calls and certain amount of meetings and and that really doesn't often translate very well to donors because they're seen as, you know, a checkbook and, and sometimes nothing else. And, and, and the thing is too, philanthropy is philanthropy itself really just means the love of humankind. So it's a lot more than the monetary side of it. And some, especially in sports, what I love is that it's sometimes equal or greater value to be able to give student athletes or Olympic athletes or whatever you may call them. Uh, give them a job, give them an internship, mentor them, um, support them by coming to their games. So there's a lot of other ways that you can, you can support and be philanthropic rather than just writing a check. That is awesome. And and thinking about it from that sense, I think is also very important because you're right. Um, no one first, no one wants to do business with someone that's desperate. That never works. Mm-hmm. If there's sharks, you know, blood in the water, sharks can smell that. Nobody really wants to do business with that person and if you're coming at it again as you said looking at a donor as a checkbook they're not going to be super interested in helping because then they're just looked at as money and i'm sure that there's much more as you said they can give including internships mentorship Mm -hmm. i mean their games just something super easy Mm -hmm. like that um can be really helpful so i think that's great and yeah i just asked that question only because you know you brought up the, the dollar amount before and like hey if we don't raise this 18 million dollars these kids aren't gonna have a home and like that is that's intense. Like that is a lot mm-hmm. of pressure, but it's <laughs> like you've been able to kind of put it off to it's the good motivation. Where, it's yes, good motivation exactly. too. Right. It was, the, and like I said, it was the motivation I was looking for in my career to be able to have a goal like that annually. I love it. And Hey, you're, you're still here. You're still doing something. So I think it's great. <laughs> I'm and still now, alive. So, yes, so yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a good day to be alive, Sam. It's a good day to be alive. Um, so while at McGill, it seems like there was a little bit of an overlap between starting Relate Social Capital and what you were doing there. Where was the spark? I mean, especially if you were having so much fun at McGill, where was the spark to say, hey, you know, I kind of want to kind of want to do this on my own. I want to do something, you know, a little different. Well, it didn't take me long to realize that I developed a very unique skill set. The way I always described it was that 
you know, everyone in athletics knew what my job entailed on the athletic side, but they didn't understand the development or fundraising, whatever you want to call it, fund development side. And then everybody on the fund development side didn't understand my job from the athletic side. So I often felt very isolated in that sense. Um, I ended up joining uh, NACTA, which is an American association. So I was down, it was kind of a bunch of like NCAA uh, people. And so when I started integrating myself more within that crowd and, and going down south, you know, a couple times a year for that, I really started to notice that this was just such a very niche space. Um, but it ended up, it was all very much by chance. It was an old professor of mine uh, from from Humber College, where I did my postgrad in fundraising, contact me and say, Rowing Canada is looking for a fundraiser and you're the only person I can think of. So could you maybe help us out or would you be interested in this role? And, and I wasn't interested in the role, but when I looked at what they were trying to do, I realized that they were setting themselves up for failure. And that's really when I started to see that there was a greater opportunity and that while I loved what I was doing at McGill, that I would actually be able to go and um, help more sport organizations if I went out on my own. You know, of course, being part of a big university, you there ends up being some conflicts of interest. And I really wanted to be able to pull myself away from any of that and, and, real, and be able to follow and pursue any opportunity that, that kind of came up my way. And, and really being able to do that under my own umbrella was, was the best bet. I love it. And it's actually really funny because my story, um, I worked with U.S. Rowing for a little while. And uh, I guess oh, no I worked with, yep, worked with U.S. Rowing for about seven, eight months. Incredible organization. And I got to work um, not quite hand in hand or side by side, but I got to work closely with their Samantha Rogers, I guess, the person that helped with all their uh, fundraising. Their fundraising. They've yeah. got a great program. Yeah. 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 National Rowing um, Foundation, I think. National, yeah, something like that. Great people yeah. training around. She's amazing um, doing what she does. And it's just so cool. I got to go to some of the events and just see what they were capable of putting mm -hmm. together. Um, just with some phone calls and saying, hey, you love rowing. We love rowing. You know, how, how can <laughs> help you to help us, uh, you know, which was always yeah. really interesting. So I think that's cool. So when, um, so you started it while you were in McGill. When did you finally decide to say, hey, like, you know what, we're, we're jumping Make off the, the cliff. Leap. Hopefully there's a, a net down there that catches me. It was almost exactly a year, I think maybe off a couple of days. So um, I started with rowing and, uh, you know, again, like when you start peeling back the layers and realizing, okay, this is actually a thing. I didn't, re I didn't realize at the time that our NGBs, or we call them NSOs here, that, that they were all technically able to raise money. So I, it took about a year to, to really start to assess the environment and see that you know our idea was either nobody's thought of this or people have done this and it didn't work and we're idiots that are just jumping right in and it became kind of apparent after about a year that this was just something that people weren't really focused on and it was a, an opportunity for us um we we had secured athletics canada which was a really big client um going into our you know after our first year and so that's when when decided to make that crazy leap and um stayed on i still stayed on and, and consulted a bit with mcgill i'd say for another 10 months even after that so um it was a nice i guess a little bit of a cushion mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was still i mean i feel like and you would know the same that you're jumping off of a cliff every day is some, yeah that's somewhat how entrepreneurship feels pretty good point yeah i think a couple <laughs> days ago um I was ready to quit. And then yesterday, <laughs> as weird as it sounds with the announcement that the Olympics will be postponed, I was like, wait, no, this is great. Let's look at this as a positive. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, mm -hmm. it's such a weird life. I'm not going to quit, of course. Um, it's just one of those things. I'm sure you felt it once or twice too, but absolutely. Um, you know, so, so it's interesting how it came about. So what, what explain what you guys figured out that like about the NSOs, as you said here, NGBs, what exactly did they not realize or what exactly did nobody else realize that you guys were able to kind of create the solution to a problem that again, people didn't know existed really? Well, a lot of them were formed, let's say loosely in the seventies. And I find that the sports sector is almost about 20 years behind the art sector. And I'm talking on the charitable side of things. Mm -hmm. So when you look at an NSO, you'll see that 
they, you know, are really great at governing the sport in the country. They, you know, have all their high performance and they have all their <laughs> volunteers. Yeah, it, it can be very bureaucratic, especially, like I said, because a lot of them are still operating from how they were created in the 70s. And when I looked at it and thought, okay, but there's nothing sustainable about your funding model because in Canada and in most countries outside of the U.S., they're all government funded. So I always equated to, if you have a table with one leg, what happens if that goes away? You know, you always want to try to have as many legs as possible. So as, as many different revenue streams as possible. And on top of, you know, being able to get sponsorships or other corporate partnerships, you could be bringing in private funding. You could be bringing in grants. You should actually be trying to generate revenue to make yourself the most sustainable you can be. And uh, after my experience at McGill and seeing how well uh, alumni fit into the equation, I started asking that question myself, is that what happens to all these great athletes that win medals or compete for us and then they go off and how, why aren't they ever still involved with their organization like a university student athlete might be? And so I really wanted to be able to look at being able to develop alumni programs for them as well. So essentially what I was doing was just taking my college athletics model and then re replicating it with our NSOs. That is super smart. Look at that. I love yeah, it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's not, it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't uh, breaking the mold on that one, but it, it was just something that had never really been done on there and before. And, and, and that's what's, what I, I believe that it should be going that way. And as you'll see within other countries, um, it's starting to turn that way as well. And it, you know, you know, when you hear something and you're like, how does that not exist already? You know, mm -hmm. it's just like one of those things <laughs> like, of course, the people that were in the organization for the last however many years and, and spent time there and received aid and all these other things, of course, they're going to want to help in some way, shape mm -hmm. or form. Right? It's mm -hmm. not rocket science. As you said, you're not breaking yeah. them, but it's just so weird. Sometimes people just don't, put two and two together you know they they see the answers for but they don't know where that other two comes from for some exactly. reason exactly um, well and like i said i mean i had the parallels of sport and philanthropy in my life for years and it took a really long time for me to realize to put them together so I, i'm not really that surprised that people who haven't come up through the charitable sector would ever think to do that in their in their nso's and so so as you said before Pretty much every country outside of the United States, um, their NSOs, I'm assuming, I'm going to go out of land, M NSO, National Sports Organization? Yes. Got it. Yes. All right. So or our some N are NSF, National Sport Federation, Federation. the NGB, okay. whatever you want to call them. Yeah. All the NG NGB here in America, National Governing mm -hmm. Bodies um, of these sports. So even, so, so as you said before, Canada is government funded. Canadian NSOs are government funded. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a little background on exactly how that works? Because again, considering here in the United States, most people think our NGBs are government funded because they all say USA in some capacity. Mm -hmm. But most people did not know and I'm sure are finding out for the first time now that nope, all these are pretty much businesses that run by themselves. Yeah, they get some funding occasionally, but they are pretty much kind of, they're just doing their thing. So if you don't mind explaining what it's like in Canada for us. Sure. So we have an organization called Sport Canada, and that's a government organization uh, because the government, you know, supports sport in a lot of different ways. Uh, that's just an area that they want to invest in, much like culture and arts. And, and if sport falls under our heritage section now. Um, so the way it works and, and very briefly leading up to the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, Canada had not done very well in medals. And so we didn't want to be embarrassed on our own, uh, home soil with not achieving a high number of medals. And so what they started doing was investing in, um, something called own the podium, which is a program that started leading up to Vancouver. And that was really just how do we how do we pinpoint our top athletes to make sure that we can bring medals home? So between Own the Podium and Sport Canada, that's where a lot of the money is pumped into the NSOs and then also through the Canadian Olympic Committee. So it's a little similar in the U.S. as well because a lot of the money that goes into the NGBs comes from all of the different um, 
Olympic rights and, and, and all the advertising and things like that, that's where they get the majority of their money. And then they'll often, as you saw with USA Rowing Foundation, they'll have their own foundations and their own corporate partnerships. And, and they're even, you know, of course, better than we are at raising money in, in our NGVs. Um, some are good, some are not so good. But for us, it's, it's really been government fundi- funded and, and should that ever go away one day, I don't know what would happen because the majority of their funds do come from that. Some of the bigger ones are more successful just in terms of, of their corporate partnerships, but still there's a big reliance on government funding. And as you were saying before, sometimes a little motivation to get good at something never hurt. And uh, yeah, having the sport, exactly. uh, sport <laughs> pay attention to Canada for a couple of weeks, um, it's uh, definitely good motivation to say, hey guys. Yeah, exactly. Here. And hey, it worked exactly. out, and, you know, as you said, <laughs> kind of led to some really cool things along the way. And, and the, the thing I'm curious about, again, you know, with, with kind of the differences between the United States and, and Canada and, and how the sports are funded and everything, I know you said you're not breaking the mold, but, you know, just kind of looking a couple miles south, kind of seeing what the United States was doing in some of these NGBs, no one really thought, like, all of these NGBs have some sort of charitable arm attached to them. No mm-hmm. one kind of put that together like was that just not paid attention to did you guys just not care like I I don't know you probably don't have the answer I'm just kind of curious it's right there I think some maybe looked at it you know like I said they're not all that great in the U.S. too like there's some sports that are stronger and so I think it's just you know and, and maybe too if you look at this if you look at the U.S. in terms of just the way that they raise money in college athletics is so different from the way we do it in Canada too and then you look elsewhere in the world and it's Australia is just starting to look at what they could do with their alumni at the college level as well um, so I think it was just a very slow process I, my favorite sport actually is to look at is, is rowing because rowing and, and it's it will be interesting to see how that trends because you know, there was the USA Rowing Foundation, then we did it with Rowing Canada, and then um, Row Australia now has their foundation, they've been raising money. And uh, in the UK, they've been working on a foundation as well. And so I'm almost almost questioning what happens when you're getting philanthropists involved, and are funding, you know, boats themselves, and how that's even going to change competition on an international uh, level if if countries are starting to really pursue the philanthropic side of it because you know where rowing may only get so much money from the government if you can bring in some wealthy philanthropists that are going to be able to fund a couple of boats and a couple of coaches that really elevate it to the to the next level and and other countries are going to have to get smart in building out that arm as well because they just simply won't be able to to, to keep up if they're solely relying on government funding, which they are. And um, Australia is making a big turn for it too. I work a lot with a colleague in Australia positioning things within our government actually to, to change the, their perception of sport because he's saying the same thing too. You know, if the government is going to be funding these NSOs, the NSOs should be proving that they're generating their own revenue as well. You can't just sit back and, you know, put your hand out expecting mm-hmm. to, to be supported all the time. That is a really good point too. And yeah, rowing is a very interesting sport, you know, kind of living it for a few months. Um, never been in a boat and I'm totally okay oh. saying that. Never <laughs> honestly want to be in a boat. I'm not a really huge fan of boats. So, um, you know, it was very interesting Fair. talking to people there. They're just like, wait, you've never rowed? And I was like, nope. They're actually like, okay, we kind of appreciate that. That's a good thing. Different <laughs> viewpoint, different eyesight, you know, eye levels and all that. So let's, let's get into relate a little bit more. You know, obviously it sounds like you guys are consulting all over the world international at this point if we're, we're uh, down in Australia and Canada <laughs> and all other places so what exactly do you do give me your you know 30 second or a minute elevator pitch well essentially we build fund development and engagement strategies for organizations that's really the gist of it um, to help them become more sustainable and diversify their revenue the and it changes all the time. So when we started, it was really about working with NSOs. And now, you know, I work at all different levels of sports from grassroots all the way up, uh, work with individuals. So we've had um, agents contact us just to help build philanthropic strategies for some of their athletes, uh, individuals that want to be able to, you know, change their investment and in, in, in legacy into sport. And, uh, look at I kind of just 
try to zoom out and say, how do we really build a more sustainable sports sector and, and, and working even across different, I still I do a lot of work in college athletics now as well, because um, that still very much needs to be developed here. Uh, if you look again, most of our universities maybe have one person dedicated to that. So, um, which was nice for me to get back into the college athletics space too, which I, I, I miss. So it's through all levels of sport, which is fun. And then on the international side, um, I founded the Sport Philanthropy Collective. And that was really from after my time at George Washington University, realizing that there was a lot of professionals in the sport philanthropy space that needed to be able to band together and share resources, just like Australia and I were doing, because we're, we have very similar sports systems and government systems because of the Commonwealth um, that we we're able to work together. And I think again, coming back to the idea of teamwork and sport is that if they're having success with our government in Australia, that sets precedent for us and then they can share certain things with us and, and that allows us to be able to, to move things a bit more quicker through our government as well. I love it. Yeah, quickly through the government. It's almost like a mm -hmm. little bit of an oxymoron there, but you got I know, I know. As I said that, it's, <laughs> it's happened. To, it's, to be honest, it's been happening quicker than I thought. So I'm pretty That's surprised. But, all right, mm -hmm. all right. Quicker than you thought. We'll take that. We'll take that. And I guess, so like, what, what is the breadth and depth of the work that you and the Relate Social Capital team do? Like, does it go from high level consulting all the way down to boots on the ground? We're going to be yes. doing that for you. So like, <laughs> I guess like I answered the question, but I want you to say, it. I guess it's better. Sure. So it really depends. A lot of our clients don't necessarily, they have limited resources oftentimes. So um, it's everything from, you know, do you just want us to come in, build a strategy, and then you're going to execute it? In some cases, we're the fundraising department for them. So, you know, you had mentioned earlier, just uh, with, with, the rowing hall of fame it was literally like we're sending out the solicitations we're building the hall of fame we're handling all the alumni relations as if you have a full-time staff or a little mini team within the department because most of these ngbs aren't in a position to hire a full-time person anyway they don't have the resources to do so so we can come in almost more as a part-time employee and, and do mm. that for them so it really ranges from very, very high level to right down to, you know, literally getting coaches to sign thank you cards and get those out to donors. Oh my goodness. So some, some of that <laughs> on the minute, but Hey, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, you know yeah. what you're doing and you know how it works. And, and I guess it same goes for the, the colleges and, and all these other places. It's pretty much just, if you guys can come in and help, you're, you're more than willing to do it. Yes, yes. And it's a little bit different. I think, you know, universities are a bit better equipped to deal with that. A lot of the times it's just being able to handle certain programming. So I'm building like a student student athlete engagement program for one of my clients right now. Um, oftentimes they like to use us as, you know, an outside voice to just come in and break up the tension and say, you know, this is what needs to be done. And then that way, if they really want to get mad at anyone, they can get mad at me and kind of keeps the peace within within the, the department so uh so it really depends um i'd love to love to see eventually you know every single ng and ngb is almost said ngo uh but ngb to be able to have their own uh fundraising team eventually that's what you you'd love to see in terms of sustainability so hopefully we'll get there one day Cross our fingers and hopefully you can help them, <laughs> help them through that process. And I guess, so you brought up um, George Washington before, mm -hmm. and there was a really cool event that unfortunately I was not able to go to, but it was down in the DC area. You did with mm -hmm. Alicia, uh, another, mm -hmm. another friend of the program, uh, John Balcom. He was awesome too. Mm -hmm. so fantastic. Putting together these events, what is, I guess, the goal in doing something like that and trying to, again, just continue to spread the word of sports philanthropy, cause marketing, all these different opportunities within the, within the industry. Well, when Alicia and I decided to do it, I think my, a lot of my motivation came from the fact that when I say I work in sport philanthropy, nobody has any idea what that means. And that's fine. And then I explain it quickly uh, if they're interested. So when that was my initial motivation. The other motivation was when I went to the George Washington program that is called, you know, it's a sport philanthropy program. They 
focused a lot on the pro teams and their community relations and then athletes and their philanthropy. And as somebody who came up through college athletics and then now um, NSOs, I felt, you know, I felt like where do I fit in? Because so much of this program is just focused on, on these two areas of sport philanthropy. So, you know, my whole thing was let's actually talk about what all the arms of sport philanthropy are there, you know, whether it's uh, sport for development or it's, you know, grassroots sport organizations, or it's all the way up to our Olympic teams or, you know, yes, it is athlete, um, athlete and their foundations or their philanthropy. It's also athlete activism. Like anytime you're using sport to do something good, that's essentially sport philanthropy. So let's bring people together and talk about all the different avenues of it. So we could really start defining what sport philanthropy is and, and what that looks like as it starts to grow. You know, it was brought up in the, in, in the, the summit, you know, someone said five years ago, we wouldn't even have been able to get this many people in a room to talk about it. And so it's really nice to see, people coming together and sharing their experiences. Uh, as somebody who came up through the fundraising side of it, I see that that's an area that lacks a lot in, in sports. It's really interesting. I find sport always tends to focus on the program side of what they're doing and then try to figure out how they get the money afterwards. Whereas most charities don't start that way. They don't go in building out their program side they always go in how are we going to actually fund any of these things and so that's what I'm trying to see on the sports side is let's let's worry about the money and the sustainable part before we start focusing so much on the program side of it and that kind of makes sense right like why would you <laughs> yes. like building something out and then being like well we're going to build this whole thing out and now we need this many dollars it probably mm -hmm. makes more sense to say how many mm -hmm. dollars can we raise and what can we do with it right mm-hmm Yes, but I think what, and I mean, again, this is speculation because it's just my own observations. I think there's so many great sport organizations that are started because so many people see the benefit of it and they are really great at doing community workshops or community programs. And that skill level is certainly there on the sports side of things to be able to say, hey, as a coach, or I can start this, I know that there needs to be a program in my neighborhood to be able to offer access to soccer for kids, for example, or whatever it may be. So I think it always starts from such a good place because sport people are so incredible at being able to develop that side of it. They just then forget about the money part and how we're actually going to get funding or, or rely maybe sometimes, like I said earlier, just on, on one funding partner. And, and that sometimes ends up a little bit disastrous. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, <laughs> one thing I found, so I, I love working with charities and in some capacity, I mean, I can, I can devote some of my time, obviously having, mm -hmm. business, you know, as you said, we were talking about before. Um, the one thing I've found that's frustrating about working with charities is all one the thing. Oh, well, the, the number one thing, all the people are there to help. They're all there because they're good human beings trying to do something. But man, as we were talking about with government before, everything is so slow. How do you, yes. being an entrepreneur in the space and, and from the sports world where everything moves very fast, how do you mm -hmm. kind of get people motivated to, hey guys, let's, let's pick up the speed. Like you could have sent me three emails today. You didn't just have to send the one mm -hmm. at 450, which now you won't answer again until tomorrow at like 12. Mm -hmm. when we could have had this whole conversation done in a five minute phone call. Like, how do you deal with that aspect of it? Because that's the thing I can't like, oh, I just try to move so fast. And I know that's not the <laughs> best way to do it all the time. But sometimes, man, we just got it just a little bit quicker. That's all. Well, I'd love to see, how do I say this? I'd love to see that talent pool really try to diversify in the charitable sector because I think you know again even before sport philanthropy was even on my radar working as somebody who came up through a business side of things now working in the charitable sector I realized that it was a lot of people that had different backgrounds um, and again they all were being brought together on on their ultimate passion or goal of being able to give back you know, I hate the term nonprofit. I, I really do because to me, there's, it's a social profit because we do have to make a profit. At the end of the day, we have to be able to budget and, and, and actually make those budgets and hit our targets. As you said earlier, like at the end of the day, yes, we still need to be able to raise $18 million or we need to be able to cut costs and we need to be 
proactive and we need to be able to operate as a business would trying to make a profit. It's just, we reinvest that profit back into the community. And so um, I think it's getting better. I think oftentimes the charitable sector really just started off the backs of volunteers and it was just people who were able to give time where they could and they weren't necessarily educated in certain areas, which is fine as, as people learn and grow. Um, but I, I, you are starting to see, I think a lot of people end up in the charitable space almost like as a second career. There weren't a lot of people like myself who studied it and went into it, you know, knowing that that's what they wanted to make their career out of. So it's, it's really a lot of work. I mean, that's something that we're working on in Canada right now, too, is that the charitable sector, uh, you know, generates so much revenue and it's just kind of not really regulated in a way it's kind of like it's very similar in the u.s it's very similar around the world too that it just has such you know it's 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 one of our largest industries but we almost look at it like it's a feel-good thing so it doesn't necessarily need to be as regulated as the business sector might be which is is completely wrong so i think people are really starting to shift and look at the way that they're that that's changing but i agree it is it could be very slow and very tedious and you know, it often is just a result of people are just under-resourced and overworked and, and, um, and again, I think have never really held, in some cases, been held, you know, had their feet held to the fire, much like you would, you know, maybe have your job on the line on the, the corporate side of things. So go back to that regulation for a second. What exactly... Mm -hmm is not regulated and what could be more regulated? Because again, this is not my area of expertise. I'm definitely kind of curious. Well, the, it's, it's weird. So in Canada, the charitable sector really, you know, if we look at where we fall under, we fall under the, the, the Canada Revenue Agency. So it's kind of weird that it's just the, the tax office is what is who regulates us rather than actually, you know, falling under I mean, there's been a lot of different suggestions of where it can look like, but if we're generating so much revenue, it just seems a little bit silly that it's, that it's really just the, the you know, our national tax um, office that, that is overseeing what we do because then it's always just looking at the black and white, you know, yes, you can give a receipt for this. No, you can't give a receipt for that. And it just becomes more so of a tax issue rather than, do we need to have another breast cancer charity? That might be a really good question to ask. Like, do we really need to be investing in this kind of research? Do we really need to be, I think there just needs to be a lot more accountability in the space. Um, you know, you, you see so many charities. I think we have in Canada, 88,000 registered charities. So, you know, and, and the, the CRA will either shut them down or, um, you know, give them warnings and things like that. But I think there just needs to be a lot more accountability in terms of actually saying, okay, like, what are you doing? How are you trying to make an impact? How does that actually fit into, you know, the landscape within Canada? And is it something that we really need? Is it, you know, there's just a lot of things that is just completely unregulated that sometimes is worrisome for me. And, and that's, um, that's something that, that came out of this special uh, Senate um, on the charitable sector. They've been reviewing that all. And I think one of the goals is to move it outside of, out, out of the, the Canada Revenue Agency and put it elsewhere. You brought that to the Senate? Uh, no, I brought um, my case for sport philanthropy to the Senate, which was to have sport considered a charitable purpose because it's not. That's, what was your so argument? I want to hear. So if you can. very quickly, <laughs> I'm trying to, to, not, to not bore everyone. Essentially, in most countries, um, to be deemed, and this is particularly true within the Commonwealth, is that to be deemed charitable, uh, especially in Canada, you, there's four major categories, and it's education, relief of poverty, religion, and then other, and other is the arts, health foundations, and things like that. So technically in Canada, you can use sport to achieve one of those things but sport itself is not considered charitable and that was a problem that when it when it came up through the legal system sport was deemed like the plane of sport is not charitable but if you look at all of the outcomes of sport it is charitable so what i've been trying to do is say you know how come you can 
how come you can donate to a museum and say that that's charitable, but you can't donate to a local rowing club and say that that's charitable? And how do we bring that up to the same level playing field? Because right now, the sport organizations that can raise money, like our NSOs, have a very weird status. And it's very similar to every country, just like the U.S. and how the Rowing Foundation can exist is because it's amateur sport but it makes it very difficult for people to raise money or for other sport organizations to get charitable status. So just really trying to make sport recognized as charitable, much like the arts are is, is what I'm trying to do. And that's what they're trying to do in, in Australia as well. I don't think that was boring. I think that's super insightful and it's really <laughs> interesting because I did not know that that, I just assumed to be totally honest with you that you could. Um, and now you're trying to change the world. I think that's awesome, Sam. That's really cool. Um, we'll I know see. we're a couple minutes over, so I hope uh, you don't have. I hope no, you didn't have okay. a schedule for a couple minutes ago. But yeah. uh, just two final questions. One, with I'm not an economist, but if the whole world shuts down for a couple months, it doesn't sound like it's going to be good. So, with this being a potential economic downturn, how are you? viewing this and what are you doing to kind of get ahead to make sure that the clients that you do have are can sustain especially the olympic ones again now we mm -hmm. have kind of a year to raise that money mm -hmm. what are you doing in case of or you know break the glass in case of you know an, an economic emergency or, or an economic downturn well it's interesting because you know, in 2008 is when I was actually doing my postgrad and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> studying to get into the charitable sector in this terrible economic climate and donations actually increased during the economic downturn. And uh, I think that just goes to show that, you know, I think that the knee jerk reaction is that nobody's going to give, but actually people wanted to give to help out others because we realized how bad it was. So I'm hoping we'll see the same trends now. And, and as you can see, I think um, there have been so many different initiatives and not just within sport, but so many different initiatives where people are stepping up to the plate and, uh, and being able to help out. And again, you're, and, and for examples in sport, you're seeing it with someone like Zion who said, you know, I'm going to step up and support people's salaries and, you know, kind of just started the whole trend where yes, everybody had to step up and it was great because, um, you know, it's a bit embarrassing when a 19 year old is the one that's, that's, you know, stepping forward and, and, and saying, you know, this is not okay when you have owners that are making a lot more money than he is. So it was nice to see because there was a lot of um, corporate shaming going on uh, where people were, you know, and, and it just started to trend. And now if you were the only team not doing it, you were sort of forced into having to, to, to take care of it and give back. So I really do think we'll make it through that way. Um, I think it's just going to look a lot different. What's difficult right now is, you know, we had so many different events planned and, and opportunities to engage people, to bring people into like Olympic send-off parties. And um, we were doing, especially with Canoe Kayak Canada, we had a really interesting women paddling program that we wanted to get started, which is now going to go on the back burner. So I think it's just having to reimagine what that will look like and, and hoping that you know, within a couple of months, things will go back to normal. Um, so it's nice we have all this extra planning time. But we'll see. I'm pretty confident in the fact that things will maybe take a little bit of a hit. But in dark times, people always want to help. And, and so that, that doesn't change too much. That's awesome. So a couple of things there. One, I don't know if you knew that I was a really big Duke fan, but that's pretty cool. So I appreciate oh, okay. <laughs> he's incredible. Um, and yeah, when even my girlfriend was like, what isn't Zion like, like 20 years old? Why is he coming out donating? Well, he's, in, he's in a, just an awesome person. So we'll start mm -hmm. with that. He does have uh, also a, a really nice contract from Nike. So that, that doesn't mm -hmm. help hurt, but it, you're right. It, it was kind of embarrassing seeing this 19 year old come up as one of the first people to be like, yeah, you know, I'll donate you know, 30 days worth of salary to all these, all these people. Mm -hmm. uh, which is great. And then you, you subsequently saw all the NBA teams, then all these other athletes do, which is great. So, Hey, if he's one of the, the pioneers to it, I'm all for it. Let's go Duke. Um, and then I did not know that the charitable giving goes up during economic downturns, but when you say it like, Hey, we all know something's wrong out there. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. People still want to help. People still can help. Certain people can still help and want to. I think that that's awesome. And yeah, I agree with you. I do think you know, and this, we're going to get hit. It's going to stink. You know, us being both in the Olympic space, it's kind of going to stink for mm -hmm. a couple months. But I think after that, 
the opportunities yeah. are even bigger and, and greater, which I think is really cool. So the last question I have for you, Sam, is what is you know, pie in the sky, dream view? What does Relate Social Capital look like in the most perfect of worlds? I think, oh, that's a great question. Um, for sure, I know I want to be able, my biggest thing is really to try and have sport recognized as charitable around the world. That would be a huge victory. Um, but I think as things start to trend towards, uh, you know, different areas of, of sport philanthropy, it's really just building up the capacity in that space. Um, you know, I'd love to see more people involved. I, I have students asking me now, how do you get into that career, which I think is really exciting because that was never a question I've been, I had been asked um, before. And so for me, you know, if every single sport organization was able to behave like a charity does and have their own fundraisers and, and really put their resources into that and be able to have a more sustainable um, organization in terms of actually generating their own revenue, that would be incredible. That would be to a point where, you know, if God forbid Sport Canada went away and you couldn't get any more money from the government, that you'd be okay. Because, you know, I think in most countries, when you look at the charitable giving, most people give to kids and health. And the way I see sport is that, you know, if we could keep kids out of hospitals, that would be great. And how do we keep kids out of hospitals? We keep them healthy mentally and physically. And how do we keep them healthy mentally and physically? And it typically goes back to sport in some capacity. So that's where I think, you know, sport philanthropy actually would be one of the greatest areas you can give to. And I think a lot of people don't just, don't really just sort of connect those dots and, and see that way. So that's what I'd love to see. It is a great way of looking at it, right? Keeping kids active is going to keep them healthier. And then, mm -hmm. you know, that'll help in, in multiple capacities. Mm -hmm. you know, I have people with, on here all the time to talk about how sports has helped them from a mental aspect, from a team building aspect, from a community aspect, and all those things can happen. And from a health aspect, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I know I said that was the last question, but you, you said some great things. So I just have a couple <laughs> of follow-up points. One, Canada was the first team to drop out of the Olympics. They're, they're going to be the first uh, country potentially to recognize sports as philanthropy. And then, you know, the domino effect from there. So look at that. Mm -hmm. We're already changing the world. We'll see. So wanted, we'll see. Just wanted to, I'll cross my fingers <laughs> for you and knock on some of um, And you answered it throughout. And that's always one thing I like to make sure of through these interviews is, is usually not explicitly asking it, but how did you get into what you're doing? And what's the mindset that you're utilizing moving forward? And you answered both those questions kind of throughout, but explicitly. When someone does reach out to you and say, how do you get into this? How did you start doing this? What do you, you normally, other than going over your entire story again, what is that normal answer that you usually give them? I usually say, just say yes, because I could never have planned this route for myself. You know, it's funny because I think things have completely come full circle for me, but I never in a million years would have ever thought that I could have built this career for myself. Um, you know, working in sport philanthropy and then having my own business, like those are my three favorite things. And somehow they all worked out together again. But like I said, I never, it was just never on the radar. And so I think you just have to be open to things. You have to just, you know, really pursue what sets your soul on fire in terms of, you know, if you feel a spark or something interests you, like pay attention to that. And then try to follow it wherever you can because I found particularly when I worked at the university students have so much pressure on themselves like they feel you know I'd have, I'd have some in my office that say you know I have to do this 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 and I said you know I'm 10 years older than you and I still don't know what I'm doing with my life you know like was starting a business the smartest thing and leaving my cushy job at the university I don't know I don't know you know it's you can't plan that you have to take risks and, you know, had I boxed myself in, I don't even know where I would be right now. So I think you just have to be able to follow it. Um, you know, people told us we were crazy on so many different levels at so many different times throughout this process. So you just really have to be, um, I think cognizant of just listening to, to what, sounds right and and what really makes you excited and and you know what i always say too like knock on wood if if things ever you know went south or things changed at least i tried 
and you know our business turned four in January and it's been a wild ride <laughs> for sure I've learned so much and I've grown so much so even from that I'm grateful for that experience and you know I think I don't know what the future will look like but I think you know just judging by my path I think it just it just changes and more doors open and maybe I'll find something that's completely different that really interests me and I'll pursue that and I think it's, it's really important to to encourage others to do the same and not feel that they have to have it all figured out by the time they're 23, because that's very stressful. And, and I would hate to see people feel like that. Oh my goodness, Sam, that is incredible advice. Uh, I think we're going to leave it there. Samantha Rogers, co-founder and principal at Relate Social Capital, all around incredible human being, changing the world, changing the laws. Let's get it. Thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Samantha Rogers. As I said, just an all around great human being. So I'm grateful I get to call her a friend. Um, Please make sure to follow her and relate on all of their socials. I think everything should be in the show notes. Please give us a five star review anywhere that you can. I would be super grateful if you did something like that. And I really do appreciate you giving me some of your time. So I think we don't get more of. So thank you for giving me yours. And I hope you make it a wonderful day.